The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. at a good place in our study of the book of Acts as we begin this month of January because there's really a beginning point in Acts with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Things are going to turn in some new directions as we see God working in the early church. So listen as I read from this eventful chapter, 9, chapter 9 of Acts, verses 1 through 25. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues and Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here? 
for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is God's own word. Acts 9, of course, reports to us this most famous conversion, possibly in all the history of Christianity. The very abrupt spiritual turnaround of Saul from Tarsus was a major factor in Christianity ceasing to be simply a minor sect within Judaism in Jerusalem and in contributing it to it becoming a broad and living faith which within one century flooded the entire Roman Empire. It was Saul become Paul who was at the center of much of that, as we well know. The vehement hater of Christ who was reversed in his tracks, who pioneered Gentile evangelism, who wrote the great epistles of the New Testament and became the instrument through which God really worked to change the world. So familiar is this story of Saul's conversion that if anyone speaks today of a so-called Damascus Road conversion, we know they're talking about a 180-degree turnaround in their whole life. And it is so important to this book of Acts that this story is told three times in Acts. Here, described as it happens to Saul, and then in chapters 22 and 26, it's told by Paul later on as he testifies about his conversion when he's on trial. John Calvin wrote a a good, conclusive uh, opinion on what's going on here. Let me quote a few sentences from Calvin. He said, When a deadly enemy of Christ, a rebel against the gospel, a man swollen with his own confidence and wisdom, burning with hatred of the true faith, blinded by hypocrisy, and absolutely determined to destroy the truth, when this man is instantly changed into a new man, when the wolf becomes the lamb, and then assumes the character of a pastoral shepherd, Calvin said, then this thing must have been accomplished by the Spirit of God because nothing else will answer for it or describe the wherewithal of it. What happened to Saul of Tarsus was in one sense unique. We aren't all going to be converted by seeing a bright light and being blinded for days, of course. And yet, what happened to him on the inside, the transformation that took place, is a transformation that you must have some familiarity with if you would call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. First of all, today I want you to see here in verses 1 and 2, we aren't going to try to cover every aspect of what's in this lengthy passage, but the first two verses set the scene for us as we see a soul in spiritual turmoil. We met Saul in the previous chapter, witnessing the death of Stephen, possibly even uh, being in charge of the execution party that stoned Stephen to death. 
And now we see him described here, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. One commentator says, if you would picture a wild boar of a man snorting and pawing the ground and ready to charge, you have the picture of Saul of Tarsus, ready to destroy all those who, who subscribe to what is now being called the way. By the way, we haven't yet seen the name Christian in the book of Acts. I'll make a note of it when we find the place where they're first called that. But right now, they're followers of the way. And Saul is going to see whatever he can do to knock them out of that way. Well, God in His wisdom prepared this man, Saul, uniquely. He was, of course, an Israelite. His family was from the Pharisee party, those who rigorously believed in the law and tried to uphold it in very scrupulous fashion. He was unique in being an Israelite who had, been, had grown up in a Roman city, the city of Tarsus, so he was a Roman citizen. Not all Israelites were that. He was a gifted, intelligent man. He studied under the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest scholar of the law in Jerusalem in that day. He had been there in Jerusalem studying, rising as a, both a politician and a student and a young activist. I speculated and have no special grounds for this, but, you know, we think already we're talking about four years from now, who might run for president? And people are saying, oh, this one and this one and that one might be a rising star. Well, you're talking here about a man who was a rising star in his career. There would have been very little that might have stopped a man like Saul from eventually becoming even high priest in Jerusalem with the prospects that were ahead of him. So here is a man believing that he should do all in his power to destroy Christians. He even reflects on it. Later in Acts 26, he gives testimony to what he was thinking at this earlier time. And there we find Paul saying, I was convinced I ought to do all possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. When saints were put to death, he said, I cast my vote against them. And I went from one synagogue to another to see that they were punished. I even tried to force them to blaspheme. This is Paul's own testimony. In my obsession, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. He was the hired gun exterminator. The wolf turned loose deliberately on the flock of Christ. And he pretty much thought he was in control. Here he was, a bright young man. He had the Jerusalem establishment behind him. They wanted him to achieve the goals that he had before him. They were giving him authority to do it, letters of extradition, probably a good expense account even to go and, and take care of this. Do everything you can do to put down Christians. Saul probably thought his mission couldn't fail. But somehow he didn't reckon on the fact that God was going to be a large log in the road with which he would collide. He probably thought God was on his side. I'm sure he thought that. And instead, he collided with God in a way he never expected to do. And so we come secondly to this wonderful encounter described rather simply in Acts 9, 3 to 5, where Saul met 
an irresistible Savior. Now, there are dozens of books and articles that have been written to try to psychoanalyze or explain the conversion of Saul. Many of them try to do it, of course, from a a merely human, psychological, or emotional standpoint. And so they have to come up with something like a theory, oh, well, Paul had an epileptic seizure. Or uh, that's a common one, by the way. Uh, Or he was struck by a bolt of lightning. Or uh, this was a nervous breakdown. He was pursuing such a hard path of life that, that things just sort of came apart for him. People have tried to explain it all that way. Well, the Bible gives it very simply and says, a light from heaven flashed around him. It doesn't describe what the light was. It doesn't tell us it was from a lightning bolt. It simply says a great light was seen, and apparently his traveling companions saw it. They also heard the voice. But no one actually saw a person. Saul heard the voice saying, why do you persecute me? And seeking the identity, of course, he was told, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this was a very real supernatural appearance of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that it could have been just a dream or a mirage for the one man is is discharged by the fact that his traveling companions also heard the voice. Jesus spoke. The one who Saul would have said was a dead blasphemer against his religion lived and spoke as the king of heaven. Later on in life, there isn't any question of what Paul claimed happened here. He spoke about it a number of times when he was trying to prove to people that he was a real apostle. And people were saying, oh, no, you're not one of the originals. You're not a real apostle. And he would say, like he did in 1 Corinthians 9.1, have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? Or in Galatians 1.16, he would say, it pleased God to reveal his Son even to me? Or 1 Corinthians 15.8, he said, Christ appeared to me last of all as to the one untimely born, for I am the least of all the apostles. But Paul certainly claimed that he saw Jesus and that Jesus revealed himself just as much so as to Peter or any of the others who had seen Jesus in the flesh and lived with him. Now that raises a question that some have. Did Saul of Tarsus ever actually see Jesus when Jesus was, was still alive as a man, as an incarnate man? The fact is, I have to answer the question and say, we don't know. We have no evidence that that ever says, on this or that occasion, Jesus and Saul were in the same place, saw each other, had a conversation or anything of that kind. But you need to think about this. Saul was a young student of the law living in Jerusalem in the exact same time frame when Jesus was in his active ministry in Galilee and in Judea and in Jerusalem. And the idea that that they never crossed paths, given all the controversial things Jesus was involved in, over against the very Sanhedrin of Israel in which Saul had an interest, is almost absurd. Saul just about surely at some time heard Jesus teach. He could have even, for all we know, have been there at the cross. We're not told that, 
We don't know that with certainty, but it certainly seems a high probability. But regardless of that, regardless of whether Saul ever looked on the earthly face of Jesus or heard his voice before, he sees him and knows him now and knows now that Jesus is alive. The one who he just went around telling everybody that why that dead troublemaker, that blasphemer, that Jesus, he now sees in such a brightness of glory that the retinas of his eyes cannot receive the light of the glory of the Lord. You may remember a phrase, and and perhaps as I read this account, you missed this phrase if you're really perceptive. Jesus saying to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That phrase isn't in this chapter, is it? It is in the account of the conversion found in Acts 26. When Paul recalls it and tells it in Acts 26, 14, he says that Jesus said to him, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, the proddings of God. We think what he had in mind was a, a common thing that was done in breaking an, a, a new ox, a young ox, to pull a cart. And the ox would, you know, not like to be yoked with another animal and have to pull. I wouldn't certainly want to pull a cart around. And uh, it, the ox would kick against the cart. Well, cart Drivers had their ways of getting the ox to behave, and they would put sharpened sticks pointing forward from the front of the cart so that if the ox was kicking, he would kick against a sharpened stick and have an unpleasant experience, and he would learn to calm down and pull in in a regular manner without that rebellious behavior. That's what Christ was saying to Paul. You cannot even get yourself into this role that God wants you to be his disciple, to be his true worshiper, and you're kicking and kicking against the yoke that God has put you in. Think of some of the goads that were there for Saul. Certainly the face of Stephen the martyr was one of those goads. He had to remember that angelic face. Remember the description when Stephen died? It said his face was so full of the peace of God that he looked like an angel. Didn't Saul remember that? Don't you think he did? Think of all the people he had hauled out of their houses and and arrested and taken away, maybe separating husbands from wives or whatever, and wondering to himself, why are these people so willing to follow this lie, this falsehood of this dead blasphemer, Jesus? Why are people willing to go even unto prison for a lie? And these goads were working on the mind of Saul as God pursued him and got him ready for this encounter on the road to Damascus. Some of you will be old enough to remember a long-ago poem, probably written more than a century ago, I guess, by Francis Thompson. It's a bit of a sentimental poem, but it's an interesting one. It's called The Hound of Heaven, in which God is, is presented as a hunter, pursuing someone and not letting this person go, relentlessly following this person. And Francis Thompson wrote in his poem as if he was the one being pursued, and he wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. 
I fled him down labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. Down titanic glooms of chasmed fears, I sped from those strong feet that followed after, followed after, followed after. You get the poet's sense. God was on his trail and would not let him go as, as like a hounds chasing a fox. So was Saul, a quarry, hunted down by Jesus Christ. We always get it backwards. We think men are seeking God. The Bible says no one ever really seeks after God. People pose that they're about a religion or a philosophy, and they say, oh, I'm seeking truth. Well, much of the time they're running from the truth that's right before their faces. But the Scripture shows us time and again when God is, is going to convert someone, He's the pursuer. He's the hunter. And we are the quarry that He would bring to bay and bring us to a recognition of ourselves and of Him. C.S. Lewis spoke in a vein like this about his own conversion. If you know anything about Lewis, who was the great agnostic professor in the universities of England and had no real use for God for a long time and gradually began to read and be influenced by some Christians, but he kept resisting. And Lewis testifies at one point, he says, I felt as if I was being compelled to unbuckle a suit of defensive armor that I had constructed around myself. And God was showing me to take off that armor. Here's exactly what he said. I chose to unbuckle my defenses, and yet it really didn't seem possible for me to do the opposite, to keep it on, in other words. You could argue, Lewis said, that I was not a free agent when I chose Christ. I'm inclined to think, though, it came nearer to being the most perfectly free choice I ever have made because no other alternative was left to me than this, and I fled to the choice. That's Lewis saying, God hunted me down, and I rejoiced to run into his embrace. Look at this once roaring lion, Saul, who's reduced here to helplessness. Three days he was blinded. They had to pick him up and lead him by the hand. He sat in a room somewhere and did, he fasted. He was a man who knew what fasting was from his, his life as a faithful Jew. And he fasted. He thought, God has dealt with me. I'm going to fast and wait and, and listen for God's direction here. And you know, there's a sense in which our conversions are usually far less dramatic than this. You may be a person who had a Damascus Road lightning blast of some kind. There are such conversions today. They're not the norm. Most come to Christ much less dramatically than this, but the constant between us and Saul isn't the drama, isn't the, the, the flashing lights. It's the fact that we too have to be reduced to nothing. We've got to have the ground stripped away from under our feet taking our pride, taking our arrogance, taking our, I can order life my way. I know where I'm going. I know the way to God. And reducing us to this kind of helplessness. This morning in adult Sunday school, I was talking to the folks about Augustine, the great Christian who 
had a great experience with God himself. And one prayer of Augustine said this one time, Lord, you showed me yourself that I might see how vile I was, how twisted and unclean and full of sores. I saw myself and I was horrified. That's where Saul is. Woe is me. This is Isaiah, remember? Woe is me. I'm undone. We need to have that ground stripped out from under our feet to truly come to trust in God. And this is where he puts his beloved enemies when he's bringing them to himself. Now, going on from verses 10 to 25, that's a huge swath of text here, and I'm not bothering with very many of its details. But, but I would have you see thirdly here today, Saul welcomed into the household of faith. Notice a little phrase that you probably missed in verse 17 as I read. As Ananias is, is persuaded to come and do the baptism, it says, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, it struck me in a new way what wonderful words those were. Here this man had been sitting there for three days not knowing what in the world is going to happen to me. Do I have a friend in this world anymore? Uh, Certainly the people I'm working for aren't going to call me their friends anymore because I've now gone over to the other side. I've seen Jesus. He's spoken to me. Who do I belong to anymore? Those Christians I was chasing see me as the enemy. My former friends won't own up to me because I'm not in their cause anymore. Who do I belong to? And along comes a man, Brother Saul. That's beautiful. Just the other day, some of us elders were talking with some of our refugee friends and listening to their testimonies of faith. And I was at great disadvantage because I don't speak Burmese. They they are better than me because they speak some English. I speak no Burmese. And I had to have some translation to help hear them say in their language for me to understand, I love Jesus. And why do you love Jesus? And how did that happen? It was wonderful to spend that time with them. And I could say back to them, you know, I can only speak to you through a translator, but you and I, you're my brother. You're my sister because we belong to Jesus together. Isn't that what Ananias did here? He came and said, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. When you belong to Christ, you belong to the body of Christ on earth. You are joined with all his people. You are not a Lone Ranger excluded person You are one of the saints of God. Welcome to the family, is what Ananias was saying to this beloved enemy, Saul. Here's a few applications I think we can take home from this text today. One of them, we certainly see here that Christ and the Holy Spirit are the prime initiators of every conversion. Saul was not looking for Christ. Christ was looking for Saul. God engineered this encounter. God makes the first move. He is the divine hunter who finds and rescues and goes after souls and makes the advance in converting someone to come to trust in him and call him Lord and Savior. Secondly, I would say we see here in Acts 9 a great example of what the Lord can do with people who are angry at him and scornful of him. 
You know, we, we run into different people. I'm sure every one of you has somebody you can think of, a neighbor, family member, co-worker, somebody who's really spiritually angry. You almost don't dare bring up where you go to church or what you believe to this person because you know an argument will erupt. Maybe you've, you've had exchanges with this person during the holiday season. And you say, wow, you know, there's a guy, I don't know why he's so angry about everything, why he's so bitter at everything about God. I don't think God can deal with that person. Let me just remind you. Romans 5.10 says of every one of us, it was when we were God's, could you fill in the line for me? God's enemies that we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Do you really think there's an enemy so far gone in anger and desperation and, and bitterness of heart that God cannot bring that one to himself or herself? God can do that. In fact, sometimes the most hostile people are the people that are actually that close. Not always, but sometimes. Don't despair of a friend who seems to have all hostility towards the Lord. Pray for them. Be faithful in praying. It may well be that some word, something you can do or be to them is going to be part of God's instrument. Maybe you'd be the simple Ananias that would be there at the right moment to say, brother, welcome to the fold of God. Don't write people off from the redeeming love of Christ. Finally, I say this to you, even if you do not have this dramatic Damascus Road bright flash of light and you're not struck blind for days, this isn't the prototypical conversion. It's not what everybody has happened. But I say to you, the result of it is what we too must have happened. We also must have the ground of our pride and our arrogance stripped out from under our feet so that we become helpless and dependent and waiting before God and say, what's next, Lord? You've, you've taken away from me all of myself that I depended on and, and counted on. What's next? Lord, where do we go from here? I, I just love If you didn't notice it, I shouldn't have to point it out, but I will in case you didn't notice how Saul starts out in Acts 9.1 and how he ends up in Acts 9.25. 9.1, arrogant, proud, strong, taking on the world. Violence is his way. 9.25, he's a basket case. That's literally what he is. His friends have to lower him in a basket in the middle of the night. And who's after him that wants to get him? The very same people who were his allies in 9-1. They were ready to kill him. God needs basket kids. God needs men and women who've had the ground stripped out from under them. Who know they can't live this life based on their own wisdom and their own forcefulness in their own resume, in their own power, in their own intellect, but who sit in that quiet of those three days of saying, what's happening next, Lord? I see I'm nothing. Jesus is real. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the Son of God. What's next for me? That's where he wants every one of us to be.
to come to our own personal Damascus Road and be utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to testify, as Paul did, nearer the end of life in Philippians 3, 7-9, these words, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I've lost my candidacy to be high priest someday, to be a great man in Jerusalem. Rubbish! I don't care about that anymore. I care that I would gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, from my own activities, but righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Has God reduced you to his basket case yet? If he hasn't, I pray that he might before 2013 is too much older. Our Father, we thank you for what you did with this man. A man who could have been great in the reputation of this world in terms of political power, religious authority, great in terms of writing commentaries on the Old Testament law, but those commentaries would have been so deficient because they would have left out Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for making him a basket case. And Lord, if there's someone here beginning to sense that's where their life is, we say praise God for that. Come into their weakness, their confusion, and lead them in a straight path to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and find a whole new life. Glory be to you, you who alone convert souls to yourself. Amen.